Daniel, we have seen, is a book that is largely concerned with the future, at least with what was future to Daniel. Much of it is no longer future to us, and that gives us an advantage. We can look at what God revealed to Daniel about what would happen after Daniel's day and look back at what has happened in our past, but Daniel's future, and see how what God told Daniel would happen has actually happened. And that does several things for us, right? One, it builds our confidence in God's faithfulness. God told Daniel, this is what is going to happen, and that's what happened. It also reminds us that God knows everything, right? There's a lot that I don't know. There's a lot that you don't know. There's a a whole lot, right? And sometimes it feels like it's growing how much we don't know, right? Sometimes um, the more you learn, right, the more you know, the more you realize you don't know. Which, for a Christian, means the more we realize God does know, because God knows everything. And so one of the, the things that God said about himself in Isaiah 46, I think is is kind of a helpful banner to put over Daniel chapter 11. Really could fit over most of the chapters of Daniel. But God said to Isaiah, uh, or, and to the people of Israel through Isaiah in Isaiah 46, he says, Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old. For I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country, I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed, and I will do it. There are people who don't think that Daniel could have written the book of Daniel because they don't think it's possible for someone to have prophesied something so detailed and so accurate so long before the events actually took place. But for a Christian who believes in the God of the Bible, there's no reason to think that God couldn't tell Daniel exactly what was going to happen hundreds of years in advance, perhaps more. There's no reason for us to to have trouble with that idea because we believe God created everything. We believe God's in charge of everything. We believe God knows everything. We believe that God is not bound by time in the same way that we are. And since he knows everything, if he wants to reveal to someone like Daniel or Isaiah or Moses something that's going to take place in the future, that's not hard for him. Nor is it particularly hard for us to believe if we believe that God is who he says he is in the Bible. So when we come to a chapter like Daniel 11, which, again, gives some people trouble because they just don't see how it's possible for Daniel to have known all this so long before it happened, what it does for us is it reminds us just how much God knows. God doesn't always tell us in advance what's going to happen. In fact, most of the time, he doesn't. Right? We know from the Bible 
the end of the story, but we don't know how much time there is between where we are and the end of the story. And we don't know everything that's going to happen between now and the end of the story. We don't know what's going to happen tomorrow or even later today. But if God wanted to tell us, he could because he knows it all. And there's comfort in that, right? So let's look together at Daniel 11. Now, I'm not going to cover every verse. We would be here longer than my voice would hold out probably if we tried to do that. Uh, But we'll try to cover quite a bit of it. And um, this passage is, uh, deals with a lot of what is for us history. And so one of the difficulties of dealing, uh, of preaching this passage, right, is that I am not a uh, historian of Greek and Roman history between, you know, 500 and 100 B.C., And so I'm leaning on a whole lot of other people and sources for this sermon. I'm going to quote uh, from various places. I'm drawing from like the ESV study Bible, several commentaries. I had multiple books open around me as I was typing all this. Um, It's different than, you know, reading a verse from Romans. You just have to explain it. And you might check a commentary or two to make sure you're explaining it correctly. But with this... I wouldn't even know what to say if there weren't historians who could tell us, here's when this was fulfilled. Here's the event that he's talking about. So I'm going to be drawing on a lot of other sources this morning to try to help us see how these things came to pass. Now, uh, beginning in uh, verse 1 and 2, we're talking about the Medo-Persian Empire, right? The angel mentions Darius the Mede. So we know we're in the the period of the Medo-Persian Empire. And after that empire, we know from earlier in Daniel and from history, comes the Greek empire, and then later will come the Roman empire. And in verse 2, the angel that's speaking to Daniel says, Behold, three more kings shall arise in Persia. So that's the Medo-Persian empire. And a fourth shall be far richer than all of them. And when he has become strong through his riches, he shall stir up all against the kingdom of Greece. Okay, so... Uh, some of this we have seen before, sort of in broad outline, but this gives us a little more detail. It tells us that from Darius, uh, there are going to be three more kings of the, of the Persians, and we know their names from history, Cambyses, Smyrtus, and Darius, uh, Hystapes. And then a fourth, he mentions, who's going to be richer than those three, that's the king Xerxes, who you've probably actually heard of, uh, unlike those other three guys, right? Xerxes, the first who shows up in the Bible. He's the king who um, Esther marries. In Esther chapter 1, in some translations he's called Ahasuerus, in some translations he's called Xerxes. It's talking about the same guy. And if you read Esther chapter 1, he was extremely wealthy. In fact, part of what uh, sets up the book of Esther is this enormous banquet that uh, King Xerxes has to show off his wealth for Days and days and days and days and days. Uh, And he does, at some point, uh, attack the kingdom of Greece. So all that uh, that Daniel is told would take place later in history. And then in verse 3, it shifts to the kingdom of Greece. When it says, Then a mighty king shall arise, who shall rule with great dominion, and do as he wills. And then verse 4, As soon as he has arisen, his kingdom shall be broken and divided toward the four winds of heaven. 
but not to his posterity, nor according to the authority with which he ruled. For his kingdom shall be plucked up and go to others besides these. Now this we've already seen before. We know who this is talking about. The great king of Greece is Alexander the Great. The one who conquered much of the known world so swiftly and died young. And when he died, his kingdom was divided into four parts, but not among his sons, instead among his generals. Right. So that's uh, what those verses are talking about there in verse 3 and verse 4. Now, um, here's where it starts to get a little bit tricky. And it gets tricky because in verse 5 it says, Then the king of the south shall be strong, Right? But one of his princes shall rule and be stronger, and so on. And then it's going to talk about the king of the north, too. And what is tricky about that is, first of all, they're not named. right? So we're not giving any names here. And second of all, it keeps talking about the king of the north and the king of the south after the original king of the north and the king of the south have died. So it's using those terms as like titles, and not to refer to specific individuals. So let me, let me give you an example that is a little bit easier for us. It would be like telling the history of the relationship between England and the United States simply using the terms the president and the queen. Okay, And if you're talking about 200 years of history, roughly... You could just talk about the president and the queen. The president did this, and the queen did that, and the queen didn't like what the president did. And you could be talking about different queens and different presidents, and the title still fits. right? That's what's happening here. The king of the south represents the, the, uh, the empire, the fourth part of Alexander's empire that was ruled by a family called the Ptolemies. You may have heard that name before as well, the Ptolemies. And they ruled more or less in the, in the region of Egypt. So the southern part of Alexander's huge empire ended up in the hands of the Ptolemies. And they are, that's where the king of the south is referring to the, the, that Egyptian part of the dynasty um, ruled by the Ptolemies. And then the king of the north is the other, another fourth part, but these are the two major ones. The king of the north is uh, ruled in, early on by someone named Seleucus. So this becomes the Seleucid Empire. And they're ruling in sort of like Babylon, Syria area. Today it would be uh, like Iraq and Iran and sort of that part of the Middle East. Right? And these two uh, dynasties are important in part because if you were to look at a map, what you would see is between where the king of the north is in, uh, again, Iraq, Iran, and where the king of the south is in Egypt, what's right in between those two? Israel, right, the promised land. And I don't know that the only way to get from the, the north to the south is through the promised land, but apparently that was one of the best ways because that's the way they went a lot. And so Israel was caught up in the middle of these two dynasties struggling for power against one another, you know, wanting more territory, wanting more riches, etc. And so as we read through here, when it's talking about the king of the north and the king of the south, that, it's talking about those two dynasties that are doing battle and they're going back and forth across uh, Israel across across the Promised Land. 
So in verse 5 it says, The king of the south, that's the Ptolemies in Egypt, shall be strong, but one of his princes shall be stronger than he and shall rule, and his authority shall be a great authority. It's interesting that Seleucus uh, the first, who rules as the king of the north, he was actually working with Ptolemy the first before they kind of split up and had their own dynasty. So that's what verse 5 is talking about. And then in verse 6 it says, After some years they shall make an alliance And the daughter of the king of the south shall come to the king of the north to make an agreement, and so on. And so this is a little bit later down the line. Like many kings and empires have tried to do throughout history, they try to form an alliance through a marriage. And so they send this woman, we know her name from history, her name is uh, Berenice, and she was sent from the south into the north to marry the king of the north to make an alliance. The problem was the king of the north was already married. And his first wife uh, did not take lightly being dismissed in face in the in the in place of this new woman who had come to marry him in uh, in order to form an alliance. She did not go quietly. And um, so let's just say it didn't go well. And there was apparently poison involved. And so this is what it's talking about when it says, um, but she shall not retain the strength of her arm, and he and his arm shall not endure, but she shall be given up, and her attendance, and and so on. It it goes really badly. Um, And then in verse 7 it says, and from a branch from her roots, one shall arise in his place. That's her brother, who I believe is Ptolemy III, um, and he uh, rises to power. And it says, He shall come against the army and enter the fortress of the king of the north, and he shall deal with them and shall prevail. So Ptolemy Third goes into the area of Babylon and uh, prevails against them. At verse 8, it says, He shall also carry off to Egypt their gods with their metal images and their precious vessels of silver and gold. And for some years he shall refrain from attacking the king of the north. So this happens. We have historical record of this, that he goes into that area and he attacks them and he plunders them and brings those riches back to Egypt. Right? Then um, we're going we're gonna to skip down to verse 21 because, again, this, this could get really long if we tried to go line by line through all of this. But when we get down to verse 21, right, now we have fast-forwarded to a figure we have met before, and that is Antiochus IV Epiphanes. And uh, we knew about him before, uh, back from Daniel chapter 8, that uh, he would rise up from the Greek Empire. Here we find out that he comes from the Seleucid Empire, that he's one of the kings of the north. And Daniel is told about him in verse 21, Um, In his place, the person before him, shall arise a contemptible person to whom royal majesty has not been given. He shall come in without warning and obtain the kingdom by flatteries. Verse 25 says, he shall stir up his power in his heart against the king of the south with a great army. Um, And uh, so we know, again, that he's, he's coming from the north. And, uh, and this is historically true, right? That he comes from this Seleucid dynasty. 
And it says that he's going to venture into Egypt, right into the south, verse 25. He shall stir up his power and his heart against the king of the south with a great army. And the king of the south shall wage war with an exceedingly great and mighty army, but he shall not stand, for plots shall be devised against him, and so on. Verse 28 says um, about the king of the north, He shall return to his land with great wealth, but his heart shall be set against the holy covenant. That's most likely the covenant between God and Israel. And he shall work his will and return to his own land. So he has victory in Egypt, and then he returns back into the north. And uh, we have record of this as well. In fact, this is uh, described in the book that we talked about before called First Maccabees. It's not a book of the Bible. It's not scripture. It's not inspired. But it's a historical book written from the Jew, Jews' perspective. And it describes some of what Antiochus did. And, and I wonder, I I'm, I'm, you know, have not studied this in detail, but I wonder if First Maccabees was written in part to show how the book of Daniel was fulfilled, because there are a lot of connections. But anyway, it says, there in First Maccabees, it says, the kingdom was prepared for Antiochus, and he decided to exercise his rule of the land of Egypt so that he might rule over the two kingdoms, the kingdom of the north and the kingdom of the south. And he went into Egypt in fierce force with chariots and elephants and with cavalry and with a great navy. And he prepared for war against Ptolemy, the king of Egypt. And Ptolemy was shamed from his presence and fled. And many casualties fell. And they captured the fortified city in the land of Egypt and took the spoils of the land of Egypt. So that's right at the beginning of 1 Maccabees in chapter 1. Uh, it describes pretty much what Daniel said would happen, just in some historical detail, because it's looking back instead of a prophecy, which tends to be a little more vague. Right. So then, in verse 29... It says, at the time appointed, he, talking about Antiochus, shall return and come into the south. He's going to go to Egypt again. But it shall not be this time as it was before. For ships of Katim shall come against him, and he shall be afraid and withdraw, and shall turn back and be enraged, and take action against the Holy Covenant. So he's going to go down into Egypt again, but it's not going to be as successful this time. And he's going to go back home in a bad mood, right? And that's going to be bad for the Jews, for the people of Israel. Um, again, we have historical record of this. We see uh, what happens. The, the ESV Study Bible, for example, sums up the story this way. Uh, they say several early historians, and, and they cite um, Polybius and Livy. If you've heard of those names, those are famous ancient historians. Several early historians tell the story of the defeat of Antiochus IV, the ESV Study Bible says, stating that the Roman commander met Antiochus IV outside Alexandria and handed him a letter from the Roman Senate telling him to leave Egypt or risk war with Rome. Next, he drew a circle around Antiochus IV and told him to decide before he left the circle. Antiochus IV wisely chose to leave Egypt. So the ships of Katim, apparently, that it's talking about here, apparently were ships bearing Romans down to Egypt. And the Romans had enough power to look Antiochus in the face and say, you don't leave this circle until you decide whether you're going home or whether you're going to fight with us too. And Antiochus IV decided to go home. Didn't want to take on the Ptolemies and the Romans at the same time. But... 
again. He goes home in a bad mood, right? He's angry, enraged, and um, it says that uh, he'll be enraged and take action against the Holy Covenant. He shall turn back and pay attention to those who forsake the Holy Covenant. That is, those Jews who were breaking God's covenant, not keeping God's law, he was paying attention to them. I think meaning like in, a, in, a, in the sense that he was uh, on their side, right? He was favoring them. And so then verse 31 says, Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress and shall take away the regular burnt offering and they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. Now, some of that sounds like what we've already been told uh, Antiochus would do back in chapter 8 in that vision there. And um, you can just, I mean, we can just imagine, right, how troubling this would be for Israel to have a powerful king who's coming back and forth across your land, trying to conquer the Egyptians. And in the meantime, when he's in Israel... He is favoring Jews who are being unfaithful to God. And he goes beyond that and uh, stops the regular burnt offering. He profanes the temple and he sets up the abomination that makes desolate. Now here, again, this is is verified by history, what Antiochus did. And so I'm going to quote from a a commentary uh, written by a, a very careful student of Daniel and of this, uh, you know, the history that goes along with it. And here's what he says Antiochus did. And just imagine, put, try to put yourself in the shoes of those Jews who are trying to be faithful to God, trying to keep the law, trying to worship only the one God of Israel and offer him sacrifices as prescribed in the law and whatnot. Here, here's what Antiochus is doing to them. Quote from that commentary. He says, the two daily sacrifices, there's a morning and an evening sacrifice, The two daily sacrifices, morning and evening, were halted. The whole temple sanctuary was polluted. And Jews attempting to follow the biblical faith were severely persecuted. Some of Antiochus' policies included a special emissary was sent to Judah to force the Jews to transgress the laws of their religion. Jewish ritual was prohibited. The sacred precincts were formally given over to the worship of Zeus Olympius. Copies of the Torah were burned. Sabbath keeping and circumcision were forbidden. Jews were forced to celebrate the king's birthday every month and to participate in the festival procession of Dionysius. High places and altars on which swine and other animals were to be sacrificed were erected throughout Judah. Inspectors were appointed to enforce this. So if you wanted to be faithful to the God of Israel and keep his law and keep his covenant, you were in a very difficult position. Extremely hard to do that. And so it makes sense, right, that it says here in verse 32, he shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant. He's going to be on their side. But the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. We're not surprised that there would be some who would say, we're not going to abide this. We're going to be faithful no matter what. But what happens to them? Verse 33, And the wise among the people shall make many understand, though for some days they shall stumble by sword and flame, by captivity and plunder. They're going to be persecuted. Some of them are probably going to be put to death. 
Right? It was a, a, a period of extreme trial and temptation and testing for the people of Israel. The, uh, the abomination that makes desolate that they're referring to here, uh, people usually say it probably refers to either an altar erected to Zeus or a pig, which according to Old Testament law was an unclean animal, not supposed to be eaten, much less sacrificed to God, right? Either an altar to Zeus or a pig sacrifice on the altar or both, probably both. Is the most, in, for um, the Jews' way of thinking, right, according to the law, the most disturbing, disgusting thing that somebody could do. That's what he did. And then um, that, in the midst of that, right, there was division amongst the Jewish people, some who are going along with what Antiochus is saying, and some who are standing up and standing against what Antiochus is saying and not wanting to do that and facing the consequences. Now, after that point, from verse 36 to the end of the chapter, it becomes difficult to know whether we're still talking about Antiochus IV or whether we have shifted ahead to the events, uh, events surrounding the Antichrist. Part of what's difficult about that is, um, you know, one thing I was reading said these uh, from verse around verse 36 onward, it doesn't all seem to line up with what we know about Antiochus. It, it seems to be talking about somebody else. Um, but on the other hand, when you get to verse 40, we're talking about the king of the south and the king of the north again. And there's been no clear, dramatic change in the story to say, now we're talking about something that's going to be, you know, thousands of years in the future. So I have no clear conviction about which one it is. Uh, I just don't know. It's very difficult to determine. You'll find wise and godly people who disagree. And so um, I just have to kind of throw up my hands and say, I don't know. I don't know which one it is. I, it's the kind of thing I feel like I could spend weeks and months studying all the passages of Scripture involved, because it's not just involved with this passage, and all the history and stuff, and still walk away better informed, but not 100% sure what the right answer is. But that's okay, right? Because there are some parts of the Bible that are just difficult and hard to understand. Paul, Peter said that about some of Paul's writings in 2 Peter 3. He said, there, you know, there are some things in Paul's letters that are hard to understand. And if Peter said that, who's an apostle, who's writing part of the Bible himself, inspired by the Holy Spirit, I don't feel bad about saying, you know, there are some parts of the Bible that are they're hard for me to understand. And, and this is one of them. You know, in fact, in Daniel, there's a lot of them, right? <laughs> Especially in the second half. So what can we say then when we come to the end of a passage of Scripture where we can say, some of that seems pretty clear, at least if I have help from some historians and scholars who can help me connect the dots. But some of it I don't really know that I understand. Uh, what's the point of me reading and studying this passage? I mean, what can I walk away with from a passage like this where I, I feel maybe more like I've had my brain worked out than I've had my soul nourished. What, what do I do with that? Well, like we've said before, what we have to do 
Not only in a passage like this, but anytime you're reading uh, something in the Bible, you know, maybe in your personal devotions, and, and you think, what do I do with this chapter that has all these details that I don't, they don't apply to me because they're talking about Old Testament laws and ceremonies I don't do anymore, or, you know, it's just most of it's over my head. Uh, what do I do with it? What we can always do is try to zoom out and focus on the big picture, the, the main things. And sometimes those are stated plainly, and sometimes they're so obvious they're not even mentioned. And we just have to kind of, again, zoom out and say, okay, what's the big idea behind this? If I'm, if I'm reading a confusing passage about Old Testament sacrifices and, and numbers or something, what's the big idea there? The big idea there is God deserves our worship. God deserves for me to give up things that are valuable to me just because he's God. Or if it's a, a sacrifice for sin in particular, it's a reminder that we are sinners and we need a sacrifice and we have one in Jesus. Here, right, what can we say? We can say, even if we don't understand all the details, we've seen enough to be reminded that what God has said about himself, knowing all things and declaring the end from the beginning, like he said in Isaiah, knowing not only knowing the future, but being able to tell us about it in advance and then us see it come to pass, that that's true, that's real, that has actually happened. It's not just something somebody's claiming for God, but God has demonstrated it again and again and again, not only through the book of Daniel, but also through every promise about the coming of the Messiah, all throughout the Old Testament, that has been fulfilled in the coming of Christ, in His birth, in His death, in His resurrection, in His life, His healings, His, his ministry, all of that. The, the New Testament is at great pains to show us over and over again that what Jesus did is exactly what God told us in advance He would do when he came. And so whether we're looking at prophecies about the coming of the Messiah, or whether we're looking about at prophecies like this one in Daniel that deal with the future suffering and hardship of the people of Israel, here's what we can always glean. There's nothing that God doesn't know. Like we said at the beginning, there's a lot I don't know, there's a lot we don't know, there's a lot of things we wish we knew, but we don't know. And not knowing can be a very uncomfortable experience, right? I, I, I don't know if, if, uh, if you were this way as a kid or if any of your kids have been this way, but I remember one of my kids um, at, at some point went from believing and trusting that their parents knew where they were going every time we got in the car to not being so sure that their parents knew where we were going every time we got in the car, and they got a little nervous about it, Right? And uh, wanted to make sure they, we knew where we were going. They became aware, right, that they didn't know. And maybe they weren't sure that we knew. That's an uncomfortable experience, right? Um, and so when we kind of wake up sometimes in a certain scenario or circumstance, we, we've known for a while, we don't know everything, but, but in a particular moment we realize man, this is really out of my control and, and, and outside of my knowledge, experience. I don't, I don't know what's going on. I don't know what's going to happen. If I don't know what's going on, I don't know what's going to happen, 
Does anybody know what's going on and what's going to happen? And sometimes we start we learn looking around and say, I'm not sure anybody knows what's going on or what's about to happen. And it's at that moment that we need to be reminded that God does know what's going on and what's going to happen. He's known it for a long time. He's known it forever. He's always known it. He's known every detail of it. Every detail of your life and my life, every detail of world history, we're really talking about small things that are going to happen to you or big things that are going to happen to the whole world. God knows it all. And that is very comforting. Very comforting. Especially if you belong to that God. If you trust that God. If that God has saved you. If you know that God loves you. You know that God is working all things together for your good. You know that God is on your side, so to speak. right? He, he is working for you. Because He cares about you. And He knows what's going on. What's going to happen in the future. Even when we don't. And so when we sort of wake up to that uncomfortable feeling, I don't know what's happening. I don't know what tomorrow's going to hold. I don't know where all of this is going. And we start asking questions because we're starting to get uncomfortable. That's when it's, again, extremely comforting, extremely comforting to to slow down, step back, and remind ourselves there's not a thing that God doesn't know. There's not a thing that's going to happen that God is not only aware of, but has plotted out, planned out. He's got it all taken care of. He's got it all under control. And we can just, to a certain extent, sit back, rest, trust Him. We don't have to run the world. right? We have things we're supposed to do. We have obligations. We have you know, responsibilities. But running the world is not one of them. Solving all the problems of the world, also thankfully not one of them. Let God be in control, trust Him, and just do what we've been called to do, and let Him worry about the rest.